I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. That's from Psalm 34, verses 4 through 7. This is the Essential Bible Studies podcast. My name is Tim Young, and I'm here with a very special guest today as we wrap up season three. And as we like to do, we like to reach out and talk to people about their testimonies, about their stories, about how God works through their life. And today we have Stan Isbell with us, who is a very good friend from way back, a man who wears very red shoes and has a remarkable story to tell. (laughs) Welcome to the podcast, Stan. Thank you very much, Tim. It's a wonderful pleasure to be here with you. And uh, so you remember my red shoes. (laughs) I do. (laughs) Very remarkable. I remember more your story because going back through the years, it seems like every time we've crossed paths, I've heard your story. And it's just so remarkable. I never get tired of hearing it. And so I thought it'd be a good idea to really record this so I can listen to it anytime I want. But your whole life is just remarkable. And I think your life is a book in need of a title. Well, I have to admit, it's the most amazing life that I've ever lived. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) And, And if God is using me, and I do pray he is, to help others to come from a very low place to his glory. Right. And it's just all to our benefit. You know, he will save, he'll reach out and save us. He will really. And it's a process of being saved. You know, it's not a, a one-time thing until we're in his son's presence. But right. uh, boy, it's been an exciting journey over the last 52 years. Let's get into it. I mean, Stan, you were born and raised in Texas. You've always yeah. lived in Texas for the most part, I guess. Yeah, born in Laredo, right on the border of the Mexican and Texas countries, of course, and stayed there a couple of years middle-class family, and mom and dad were what you might call educrats. They were uh, into uh, education. Dad was actually a World War II veteran and served in the Navy and ended up an engineer in Arlington, Texas, when I was in grade school, and uh, we were Southern Baptist, dedicated Southern Baptist, mom and dad were. It wasn't just an accessory like religion can be to some people sometimes, but it was a way of life. So I lived in Arlington, Texas for about five years. Dad was working at Chance Vault Aircraft as an engineer supervisor, and mom was teaching. Then he, dad came home one day and said, we're moving to the country where he had been born and raised in a town called Iola, right in the middle of central Texas. So, And mom didn't want to go. We didn't want to go. But dad was, uh, he was sort of driving the train, and we went to uh, Iola and lived in the country for about five years. And it was a wonderful country life, you know, raising calves and pigs and hunting and hiking and- Everything we uh, think about Texas. Oh yeah, it was great. I started playing football and uh, that's the Texas religion as you probably know, Friday night lights. Friday night lights. But we always centered our life around the church. And I I started singing uh, in a little trio at church playing a guitar and and then went from singing at church to singing folk songs with a trio like the Kingston trio and enjoyed music and music was always a part of my life personally. And and then uh, we ended up moving 
to uh, a city closer to Arlington called Hillsboro, and that's where I finished out my last three years of high school. And the high school, I tried to play football. I wanted to play football and because uh, I had started it, and uh, it was the year of civil rights. The what laws year was that? that had been that was uh, sixty four. Okay, uh, actually, it would have been sixty four, sixty five. And uh, Kennedy had been killed in 63. So uh, our generation of young people, I had just turned to a teenager. We were living in a violent world, obviously. Yeah, when it's your pretty tumultuous gets, time. Gets assassinated and you know right where you are because of the collective consciousness of every kid, every person in, in the United States remembers where they were at that time. We had the threat of a Cold War looming over our heads and we did nuclear blast drills diving under your desk and, and right. like that's going to help a lot right <laughs> <laughs> when the when the explosion hits next door but anyway we uh in high school i got into a rock band we weren't famous at all you've never heard of us but we had a lot of fun but at the same time that brought in the parties and drinking and so oh, right. i you can sort of see where that uh, lifestyle is going to go if your band drives several hundred miles, which we did, to do a gig for one of our drummers' cousins or whatever, and got paid for it in alcohol. So uh, ultimately, we moved from Hillsboro. But before we did, on that summer, my lead guitarist and I were at the lake, and it was a big lake with cliffs, limestone high cliffs. We used to dive off of those cliffs. And uh, he challenges me to swim across the lake and I start swimming and he's a strong swimmer and I was not. And I was real bulky from playing football and I got halfway across this lake and it must have been 200 yards. I got halfway across and I was done. I was totally done. I couldn't swim another stroke. And I looked around me all the way around me and I kept looking for some form of help and there was none and I knew in my mind, it was like, I'm going to sink right here and they're going to drag the lake for my body and the headlines are going to, maybe not the headlines, maybe a little short article in the back page of the paper is going to reveal that how I went down. And, you know, Tim, I remember thinking that this is my last shot, my last breath. And suddenly, and I turned around and as close as my arm's reach was the hull, aluminum hull of the boat. And there were two couples in it. They pulled me into the boat, took me all the way back to where I started and dropped me off without saying a word. Really? And they left. And I've always remembered that. It, it was a strange story because, and I only bring it up because years later, I went over to see a friend who was graduated from high school and was there on that cliff that day. And he said, Wow. And he looked at me like he'd seen a ghost. He said, what happened to you? I said, what do you mean? What happened to me? He said, I, I hadn't seen you in what, 30 years or more, 35 years. And he said, the day that you tried to swim across the lake, what happened to you? And I said, well, didn't you see the boat pick me up, take me back to shore? He said, no, we were all up on the cliff and never saw that. And then you were gone because actually I told him, I said, well, I, I picked up Billy and we Went on back home to Hillsborough, and after that, my family moved me down to the Gulf Coast. He said, we never saw the boat, never saw you. We were just always wondering what happened to you. Never came back to Hillsborough. Interesting. And I, said, and, I thought and you I, died. 
yeah, he thought I had died. And that's why he thought he had seen a ghost when I walked in his office. And I said, no, I've uh, been healthy and alive in a lot of trouble here, here and there, but uh, I'm doing fine. How are you doing? So anyway, just <laughs> <laughs> it was just a really strange thing. That was from his uh, observation personally, and that he had not seen the boat pick me up. Billy made it across the lake. But anyway, jumping on down to, to Freeport, I went to a college that my dad and two of the men had started. I went one semester and said, this is nothing but high school on steroids. And it is not what I'm looking for. And dad was really disappointed and really angry when I told him I was going to hit back to California with three friends of mine. And we got into a tussle. And knowing that he boxed in the Navy on the USS Hamill, and he loved boxing. And I'd seen him in action before when some fellows broke into our house chasing my brother. And he took care of a couple of those guys at one time. So I knew better than the boxing. But you got into a physical fight. We, oh, yeah. He picked up a cowboy boot and said, I'm going to give you something to remember me by, boy. Ooh. And hit me square in the forehead with the heel of the cowboy boot. So I've been branded as a cowboy ever since. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what that dent in your head is. <laughs> oh, it did. It left a real impression. So uh, he, he was really upset. And I can't blame him because you got to remember like the Hunger Games movie that came out a few years ago where they selected people to fight against each other to the death. Well, that was the Hunger Games, and some of your listeners will remember. Well, the Hunger Games really existed because the selective service in the United States caused a lot of young men to lose their lives, almost 50,000 oh, men we lost in talking Vietnam. About the, the Vietnam War. If you looked that up on Wikipedia or something, you'll find that it was an insane way of selecting people from a lower class of society, they thought, they would select a little blue ball with a number in it. And if your number came up, you were selected and you were sent to basic boot camp. And the only way you could really stay out of the draft was to stay in college. So dad was keeping me in college for my own safety. Oh. And he knew if I got out and dropped out of college that I would be subject to the draft. And sure enough, I got called up. And so I was ready to, to go. I even went down to, to take my physical and join the Navy and follow in my dad's footsteps course vietnam was at its height in those days and right. uh, but before my physical i took off for california with my three friends and spent three months out there and uh, at odd jobs and even dealing drugs handfuls of drugs on the street and trying to make enough money to pay the apartment bill getting into fights with bikers there's a whole bunch of colorful things that i'll skip over for the sake of time but it seems like you went downhill pretty fast there. Pretty fast. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty fast. Yeah. There was some ugly times on Hollywood and Vine. And I hitchhiked back with a friend of mine to Texas and got down to Freeport back home. Then this friend of mine picks me up and we go over to a guy's house that I didn't know, never been there. And we wanted to watch Janis Joplin perform on the old Ed Sullivan show one Sunday night. And right. We went down and there were like five of us in Charlie's house. We sent Al outside before the show started to get a joint. He goes out, he gets a joint, comes in, and we're sitting there. And before we can even fire that puppy up, we all hear this freaking noise of the screen door of the front door. And it went, 
And when we asked Al, we said, all of us looked at him and said, Al, did you lock the front? Bam. And there came in brown-shirted deputy sheriffs, Whoa. Uh, four of them, shoulder against the door, blew the door open, and they were grabbing us as fast as they could and handcuffing them and throwing us down on the floor. And I jumped up thinking with the thought in my mind, I have got to get out of here. And uh, <laughs> no doubt. I think, yeah, I think the animals had a song like that back in the 60s. We got to get out of this place if it's the last thing we ever do. So I took off through the living room, through the kitchen. So I opened the door and there's a federal narcotics agent standing there with the screen door open oh. facing me. He didn't have his gun pulled, but I hit him full force and knocked him to the ground and he grabbed my ankles and uh, I kicked him loose and he ended up with a mark on his face. But I ran down the side of the house and heard the pistol that he had was, I think, a Smith and Wesson 38. And he fired it just over my head. And I jumped over a fence and lay on the ground like he had hit me. And he came up and said, blank, blank, blanky, blank. I know I shot over your head, but if you make a move, I'm going to blow your head off. And so I didn't make a move. I pretended I was dead. And <laughs> he said, I know you're not dead. It <laughs> didn't work. Yeah. didn't work. So anyway, they took us all to jail for eight days. And dad was very, very disappointed when he came up. So that uh, ended your Navy career. That ended my Navy career right ahead, a step ahead of me. One way to get out of Vietnam. Yeah. We flushed the joint that we had. So they had to bring in their own pot. So they brought in their own pot. They gave Charlie 10 years because they had his place. 10 years. Out. Yeah. They, gave, they had his place staked out. He was dealing to the high school kids. And I see, I didn't know him. But they had been staking his place out and they thought we were his suppliers and we were nobodies. We were just dummies that coming in wanting to get high. But the, it was a felony for me, a felony rap for all five of us. I got three years. All the rest of us got three years probation and Charlie got 10. How much time did you actually spend in jail then? Eight days. And that's when I got my last haircut for about five years. I, okay. cleaned, up, I, cleaned, I cleaned up, I put on a tie cut my hair and they gave me three years probation. And, and like you say, a felony, they didn't want me going over to Vietnam and, and influencing their soldiers, the U S soldiers uh, <laughs> who were already stoned out of their minds. Yeah. But so yeah. it, was, it was three years probation. You weren't three years in jail. No, I was not right. three years in jail, but I had to report okay. to my parole officer every week or so, you know, maybe every month, I think it was. Right. And then I moved over to Florida during that summer. So I lived there several months, actually. But I was still into drugs and smoking and partying. And that's kind of what we just did as young people. And I was about 19 and went to West Palm Beach Pop Festival in 69 with friends of mine. And, and we, uh, uh, for the very first time, I did intravenous drugs by shooting up some methamphetamine uh, or amphetamines that you boil down in a spoon, as ugly as that sounds, and it is. Yeah, it makes uh, me it, wince. Oh, I know. But uh, the worst part about it was I caught hepatitis from using a dirty needle. And uh, I didn't like the thrill. The thrill was there, but it didn't like the process you had to go through. Uh, it was too invasive for me. And so I didn't do that very much, didn't do that hardly at all afterwards. But uh, that one time, one or two times I did that, it, it gave me hepatitis that stayed with me up until about 10 years ago. 
And yeah. uh, that's an interesting story of how we got rid of the hepatitis <laughs> because the doctor who was helping us get rid of the hepatitis is now a Christadelphian and uh, he wanted to know about our faith. And, so, right. and that's another story. But uh, anyway, got back from Florida. And how are we doing on our time, Tim? I don't oh, know. yeah. It keeps going. Okay? That's good. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But I got back from Florida, went to mom and dad's again. It was like a stopover at their house. And this friend of mine had come down from the mountains in New Mexico, and he wanted to go back home to his cabin up at a hippie community. It was a community, not a commune, because everyone had their respective cabins on this 88-acre plot of land that was named the Kingdom of Heaven. And it was up near this little New Mexico town of Mora. And then above that is Guadalupita, this tiny little tree foresting village that's in a canyon. It's on a Wren Canyon. Well, the Kingdom of Heaven was this 88-acre beautiful saddle of a valley uh, between two large hills. Absolutely gorgeous place. So I took him all the way up there and I had loaded up some gardening tools and I said, well, I'll just try the hippie life on a commune. And uh, so I started building a cabin, a log cabin, and it was really hard work. We lived off food stamps, lived in a teepee. Uh, it was an authentic Indian teepee that had a fire pit in the middle, and you had to angle the tent poles just right at the top to keep the smoke going up and not filling up your tent. Caught dysentery by drinking bad water, was really sick. So those three months lasted, and I was cleaning my system out. So you're trying to get off all the drugs and stuff. I am trying to get off all the drugs. It was really good, hard work, healthy work, dragging logs down from the mountain that the loggers had actually uh, left. It was an exciting time for me. It was playing the pioneer, eating right. So uh, this ex-girlfriend follows me up from Florida. She somehow finds out where I am. And to this day, I have no clue how she did because I didn't tell her. But she found out where we were. So she brought two friends of hers and they brought acid with them. And mm. um, one of the girls, not the ex-girlfriend, one of the girls came crawling into my teepee when I was asleep that morning. And she said, hey, Stan, we've come up from Florida. We found you and we're all going to drop acid and trip around the mountains. It'll be great fun. She said, open up. So I opened my mouth. She pops in this little drop of Berkeley orange sunshine and off I went and my mind was flying because I didn't have any more tolerance to the hallucinogenics that I used to have when taking them periodically. So I had to separate from all the crazies that came up from Florida and, and even the hippies that were there. My friend that I had taken up there, he dropped acid too, and they were all tripping around and enjoying it. But for some reason, Tim, I had to get away from all that. And I took off up the side of the mountain as fast as I could go. And, and I walked and hiked all the way up to the top of this mountain where the view was just stunning. And you could look out over the morning mountaintops that were covered with from the previous winter snow. And I started talking to God. And I had a conversation that lasted three hours with him. As a matter of fact, part of my physical activity while talking to him was picking up these big round white rocks and and laying them out in a pattern that spelled G O 
deity on the mountaintop. And it was silly. It was primitive. But it was the best I could do at the time with what I had left of my poor mind that I was mm. trying to piece back together. That ended up me going back down, coming off of the mountain, coming off of the trip, the LSD trip, and um, joining up with this girlfriend and driving back in a Volkswagen to uh, tell her parents that we were married, which we weren't. But her parents gave us a truck and camper, drove the truck and camper all the way back from Florida to New Mexico, got to El Paso, just as we're going to cross into New Mexico. And the young lady says, you know, I don't want to go up in the mountains and live with you in that primitive area. I want to stay here with my friends in El Paso. So I said, all right. So I took her over to her apartment with the girlfriends that had an apartment. And I went on back up to the mountains and lived by myself in a shack because somebody had already taken over and occupied the TP. Well, turns out I had to go back down to El Paso. And a week later, I was so lonesome. And I picked her up, said, get in the truck. We're going to Florida. She got in the truck. We went to Florida, sold the pickup and camper, gave her half the money. And I took half the money and I was going to catch a bus back home to Houston. So I called up another girlfriend who was living in Florida just to say hi. I was on my way back to Houston. How are you doing? She said, where have you been? I got pregnant and I need money from you because I had to have an abortion. And so my indiscretion as a young man with this girl ended up causing her problems. So I said, I'll wire you every penny I have. So I gave her every penny I had, $500. I said, it's all yours. I'm sorry I caused you the trouble. And she wasn't angry after that, but I didn't have any money to get to Houston. So I went to a park and there was a bunch of hippies on Sunday afternoon listening to music. And this guy walks up and hands me a joint and says, how are you doing? I said, I'm not doing too bad, doing pretty good considering all. He said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Houston if I can get enough money for a bus fare. He said, I'll get it for you. He went around to every person and collected money from all these people in the park to get me enough bus fare. And I got on a bus and headed to Houston. And it was brotherhood, right? It was a brotherhood. You didn't right. you could do that to the stranger, you know, like the Good Samaritan. You, I've been beating myself up and I didn't, didn't need muggers on the way to Jericho. I just beat myself up with life and making bad decisions. And yet there are people that are watching out for you. I believe that God's angels have been watching out for me and the first place was that lake where I nearly went down. And I think God has had his eye on me for a long time, but I haven't been paying attention. And right. I'm encouraging your listeners to pay attention to the signs of God's working in your life. They may not be invasive and obvious and conspicuous, but he's working in your life. And if you're listening to this and Tim's podcast, any of them, Listen, pay attention. So I got back to Houston and had a double date with a girl by the name of Wendy. And uh, absolutely gorgeous girl. Big, beautiful brown eyes. Big, beautiful smile. And just as kind and sweet as she could be. And I was really dating up. <laughs> so, But anyway, we uh, hit it off. And uh, I moved into her apartment with her girlfriend. And then her girlfriend found another place. 
And we decided, since I wasn't working and she was working for the phone company and had a good job and she attended the Catholic church every morning. So I said, how would you like to go to Mexico? And a friend of mine from Florida had contacted me and said, look, several guys have made this run. We need to make a run. A run for drugs or something. Yeah. Ended up taking a 59 Chevrolet all the way from Houston through Victoria, Texas, down through Mexico, all the way to the western coast of Mexico, to Acapulco, scoring a large amount of controlled substance. (laughs) Quote marks there again. And and bringing it back across and trying to sell it. And that was sort of the beginning of the end of my life as a dealer. I was an awful businessman, but we had a lot to get rid of. And in the city of Houston, that wasn't really hard to do. And one night a guy came in and he said, hey, there's a fellow over here across town that just brought up a van load of peyote. And uh, are you interested? And we all said, sure. So me and my buddies went over there and got a couple of bags of these cactus. They're little buttons. They're squat buttons about two anywhere from an inch to three inches across uh, in diameter. And they are where you get mescaline. Mescaline is another hallucinogen like uh, psilocybin, magic mushrooms, and oh. LSD, lysergic acid, diethylamide. So these peyote buttons have a strychnine center, and you have to cut that out because strychnine, of course, is a poison. poison. So you want to make sure you get it all out. Well, I made the mistake of cutting it out, but at least I thought I did. And I ate eight of these buttons. And that's really an overdose because I had no knowledge. I wasn't doing any research on them. It was just like, well, if if one will get you high, eight will get you higher. Right. And Tim, I'm telling you, that was like turning a kite loose in a thunderstorm. My mind went through some of the most horrific thoughts and false hallucinations. And it wasn't long before I was driving everyone out of the apartment. My eyes and pupils were dilated. And I am peaking, what they call peaking. You're reaching a peak of your trip, your LSD trip or your mescaline trip. And I was really, really stoned and very afraid. So that night, I went through every emotion you can imagine. And I was crying uncontrollably. I was screaming. I was laughing hysterically. And Wendy was really afraid for her own life. We ended up leaving that apartment the next two, three days, we got all our stuff and left, went all the way across town further west in Houston. And we began to try to piece together like the mountaintop thing. I tried to piece together my mind, went to a psychiatrist that Wendy ended up having to pay for because my mom wouldn't believe I was in that bad a shape. The psychiatrist in Galveston listened to me for about 30 minutes spill my guts about what I'd been doing and dealing. And he really had no concern or care for me. He just scribbled with a pencil, probably doodling. And then at the end of the session, he says, well, it appears you've taken too many amphetamines, too many barbiturates, too many hallucinogens. So I'm going to prescribe you some barbiturates, some more mood control prescription. More drugs for the drug. More drugs. That's so I thought to myself, dude, you're not even listening to yourselves. 
I took the prescription and went downstairs. Wendy and I went to the pharmacist and found while he's filling this script, a puzzle of the Lord's Supper. And I said, you know, I can relate to that man, Jesus in the middle. I know who he is and I know where that painting is from, from my childhood, from my upbringing and the word of God. But I don't know enough. Maybe I can figure it out. So it was self-therapy, took it back to the apartment, pieced all the puzzles together like a thousand pieces. But they kept falling out every time we would move this thing around. And I, I, I wasn't getting anywhere. And my mind was so filled with mental demons causing me great fear, paranoia. I didn't trust Wendy. I didn't trust myself. I didn't trust anybody. And it got to a point, Tim, honestly, I had slapped Wendy one time and I knew that her, her oh, no. health was in danger. I got angry and jealous and slapped her one time. And I told her, if I ever get into that oh. red zone, you run to the bathroom and hide and lock the door. So that's what she had to do. And I knew that my life was reaching an end because I could not go on this way and still be any kind of company or socially uh, acceptable by anybody in any kind of relationships. I had destroyed all of them. And Wendy was my last anchor. And it got to the point where raw emotion was the only thing that could connect me with reality because I had burned the curtain between reality and the fantasy play goes on behind the curtain. You open the curtain for a trip and you watch the fantasy play and the curtain closes, you're back to reality. You come down from the LSD or the, the hallucinogenic trip uh, from the peyote and I never came down. I just never came down. And I couldn't distinguish reality from fantasy anymore. Wow. And it's such a danger to young people to think that you can just play with your mind, play with your brain. It's such a right. sensitive organ. And God has designed it into us to operate on the basis of truth and logic. And so I was looking for truth. I wanted truth out of my girlfriend's mouth. I wanted to hear what was true. But every time she spoke, I was thinking, you're lying to me. And that's what happens to people when they. Yeah, but that was your brain. Yeah, your parent. Uh, my brain was reinterpreting what was really being truthful, and my relationship were deteriorating. People who are insecure, and I was. People who are egotistical, and I was. And all the attention that I kept trying to get in the sixth grade from my classmates, ending up out in the hallway from the teacher putting me out there for disrupting her class. I wanted the attention of friends. And to get friends by being the clown, right? Well, all that attention will back up on the egotistical person, male or female, and it causes some real psychological problems. So I didn't know what to do except maybe put an end to my life. And that became more oh. and more and more serious because I didn't want to put Wendy through any more hell. I didn't want to put her through any more anguish. And she deserved a whole lot better than that than me. So I was ready to, to finish it. And the last, the last thing before I was ready to finish it that I did was I went down to her job at the telephone company and I walked in the glass doors of the lobby, went up the stairway, and I got Wendy out in the hallway and, and into the stairwell and started accusing her of going out on me while at work, which was absolutely absurd and insane, but that was my sick mind. Mm -hmm. And, and I had to get her Tim to cry. If I could get.
that's hard as you live back through that, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It was like a tether rope off of a ship in a raging sea. And the rope was her emotions. So I had to get her to cry. And she did. And I went back downstairs with determination to put an end to her pain. And I got in the van, my hippie van, Volkswagen, two-tone maroon and white. And I'm going down Main Street of Houston city skyline uh, and uh, buildings and it's raining and the wet pavement reflected these tall buildings on either side and it looked like a canyon and a canyon was an abyss and it was a it was the lowest point in my life and i pleaded I pleaded with whoever God was, whatever God was, I pleaded. Just as broken as a man can be. Mm. And, and you don't get more broken, more crushed. And I said, show me the truth, please. Show me the truth. I need truth. I don't know where it's going to come from. I don't know if it comes from the colleges, the universities, the Nobel laureates. I don't know if it comes from church. I don't know where it is. I don't know if it's from the Hindus, the mysticism. And, you know, within and, and I pleaded with him in tears. Stan, I think this is the lowest point in your life right now. It's. It's hard to see, <laughs> but there's so many people out there who have gone through the same things or are at that point right now. Yeah. I think it's just an important point just to stop and reflect that no matter who it is, we can see God's can work through that life because we're going to start to see the change. It's not instantaneous. No. It's going to take a whole process right now. And I yeah. think we're going to leave it right there right now. And we're going to go to part two of this story, which I think is just so, so important, so impactful for us to, to understand. And we're going to come back in the next podcast and we're going to pick it up and see your journey. That'll be great. Back. I appreciate you letting me vent. And, and <laughs> it's really hard. And when you're looking back, I mean, how many years ago was that, Stan? I mean, it's 52, 50, 52 52 years it still is just so emotional vivid, for you vivid. it's like a uh, basement that you boarded up the door because the sewage and water has leaked down in the basement in the lowest part of your life and, and you're stumbling over stuff 
and you got it, and you don't want to open that door, but it, it'll help other people. And there are so many veterans who have PTSD, yeah. suicides. I know, I know but, where they are. We see like examples of this in scripture too, like with the apostle yeah. Paul, they re- reach a nadir in their life, just this very low point, And that becomes the center of everything after that, because they never lose that, that touchstone of how terrible life is and oh. how wonderful the promises of God are that are ahead of and them. So, right. Oh, so yeah. it's such a contrast. It's, and you know, where he has brought us and our relationship, it cannot be measured in any kind of description. I don't have the vocabulary for it. It really has to be tasted and t- tasting the word of God. And the word of God is what's pieced together the brain that you're hearing now. If there's anything left that is to the glory of God and the edification of other people, and that, it's God's work. He put it together. You know, and right. I just had to yield. Yeah. Okay, Stan. So we're going to come back in the next podcast with the the rest of the story, as they say. (laughs) I sought the Lord, and he heard me and delivered me from all my fears. They looked unto him and were lightened, and their faces were not ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his trouble. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivereth them. Psalms 34, verse 4 through 7. This is a Christadelphian podcast supported by the Book Road Ecclesia in beautiful Ancaster, Ontario, Canada. Until next time, my dear friends, may God help you to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen.